my favorite adventures with my UV flashlight is I was on my way back from a lecture um, after dark and stopped here at the museum where we have a really extensive pollinator flower garden. And as I was shining my UV flashlight around the flowers, there were all these little pinpricks, like little stars among the flowers. And I realized they were super tiny crab spiders. So during the day, I never would have been able to spot these little tiny crab spiders, like the size of the, a blunt tip of a pencil or something. And now here at night, when they're reflecting UV, they just stick out like a sore thumb. They're super bright and really cool. So, you know, the looking it with a different way, looking with a different tool at nature can often help you discover new things that you never knew were out there. Welcome to the open air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. My guest today, Emily Stone, is a naturalist and the education director at the Cable Natural History Museum in Northern Wisconsin. Emily writes a weekly column called Natural Connections, in which he transports readers into a magical world where nature is wilder than fiction. Today, she shares a few of the stories of natural phenomena you might come across on a spring or summer hike, and she also shares a really fun way to see the natural world in an entirely new way, with a few simple explorer's tools if you can just gather the courage to get out into the forest after dark. Emily, I'm so happy to have you joining us. And I'd love to start by helping our listeners understand um, how you look at the world through your lens as a naturalist. Um, and I, I read somewhere you wrote, uh, you're not as interested in writing fiction because nature has so many fascinating true stories to be told. Um, and it's been so fun to read those stories in your weekly column. And I was hoping we could start, you know, looking at your lens as a naturalist how that helps you discover those stories, so many of which are about the interconnectedness of plants and animals and really all life on Earth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my lens of looking at the world as a naturalist is is really who I am. And that comes about partly because of, of who I was as a kid and growing up and also my education and now my job too. I mean, as the Naturalist at the Cable Natural History Museum, it is my job to find those stories in nature and to teach people about them. And, you know, through my weekly column every week, I have to find a I have to find a topic like all the time to tell people about. <laughs> and so it really is is good motivation um, for whenever I'm hiking, you know, if I'm um, out on the weekend, or if I have a field trip that I'm leading or something, I always have in the back of my mind, what is the story here? How can I turn this into a story? And how can I make this meaningful and relevant to my audience when I write about it? Well, you certainly do that. And I, I mean, there are small things that you write about that I just go like, I had no idea like that was the case or that's so amazing how this plant species in, you know, re interacts with this animal species. And I'm wondering, you know, I also read you say that spring is, is an incredible time for a hike. And I was wondering if you could share maybe a couple of your, you know, springtime phenomenon, things you might only see if you 
start to look closer at the natural environment um, on a spring day? Oh, yeah, there's so much going on in spring. Um, oh, you know what? One of my favorite things about spring is Dutchman's breeches. So these are little white flowers and they have that name because someone thought they looked like little pantaloons on a clothesline. So <laughs> Dutchman's breeches. And they are a true spring ephemeral, which means they um, they grow, they bloom, they go to seed. And then by the beginning of July, there is nothing left. You know, if I'm able to hike through my favorite woods several times a summer, it is amazing to watch the change because a place that was once carpeted with their beautiful little highly dissected delicate leaves is then just like grown up with something completely different and there are no signs of the Dutchman's breeches left. Um, but when they're blooming early, early in the spring, they are a really favorite food and a highly connected food for um, bumblebee queens. Oh, wow. So bumblebee queens are the only ones of their of their colony to survive the winter. So last fall, the drones and the new queens, they mated, the drones died, everyone else died, and the new queens find a cozy rotting log um, to overwinter in. Wow. And then when they emerge in the spring, they need food. And Dutchman's breeches are one of their favorite foods. And Dutchman's breeches, the way they are designed with those little pant legs sticking up in the air, those are where the nectar is stored. Uh, and okay. so, and they have a really kind of tight waist. It almost looks like a little elastic waist on the flowers. And bumblebees are the only bees who are strong enough to open up that elastic waist and have a long enough tongue to get their tongue all the way into the nectar spurs that are the pant legs. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the flower is designed so that just bumblebees can get their nectar and therefore bumblebees will be going um, just among the Dutchman's breeches and they'll carry the pollen to the correct flower. Oh my gosh. Um, so it's a really cool design. Wow. Oh my gosh. Just about that. I have, I have so many questions. Do you, do you know, or do you, is it known like who evolved to, to meet whose need? Like, who is it the, the bees or the, the breeches that like evolved, like did the flower evolve to have that access or did the bee evolve, like evolved so that their tongue could reach the nectar or do we know much about that? Those are all great questions. And <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I think it was co-evolution where they would have developed together, but I don't know exactly, you know, stepwise how it would have happened. Yeah. Um, you know, bees actually evolved from wasps. Wasps were earlier in evolutionary history and um, wasps were eating um, the bugs that were on the flowers and then potentially started mm. eating some of the pollen too. And so these vegetarian um, hymenoptera evolved who are the bees. And wasps are actually way more diverse than the bees, um, but there's still just an amazing diversity of bees who also have all these special relationships with the flowers. And so bees and flowers really erupted around the same time in evolutionary history, as I understand it. I mean, this is, this is not my area of expertise. And, you know, as a naturalist, my job is not that I go out and like do the, do the actual research. I just read about the answers that the scientists have have gleaned and then try and make it accessible to the public. So there's a lot I don't know. And that raises like the question too of like who's affecting who, right? Which is one of the things I love about Michael Pollan's writing too. It's like, are we think we're 
shaping plants to to do our bidding, whereas sometimes the plants are shaping us in ways we might not think of. So it's like, yeah, are the like you just said, are the Dutchman breeches getting the bees to carry their pollen to specific places, or you know, it's like they're serving each other in a really symbiotic way. That's Yeah, absolutely. It is a wonderful example of a symbiotic relationship. And you know what? Maybe all the kale in my garden is also an example of a symbiotic relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Reading even just the introduction to Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan totally changed the way that I think about plants. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the spring reemergence, that's been a fun thing. You know, at at our house, we've very recently, since we had a, a later spring this year, recently started hearing the frogs again and the spring peepers and um you know my sons two and five my five-year-old's like so wait where did they come from where were they all winter and i'm like i don't know exactly where they were all winter my understanding is they winter over in the in the mud and and from reading your writing i know that like they will their bodies can be 60 percent i a specific species can be 60% frozen, like a straight up frogsicle, as you put it. And that blew my mind. And what you just said about the queen bee surviving winter, that blew my mind. And so this time of year, as we see all of these creatures starting to emerge again, I go like, wow, like it, it's amazing how the winter survival happens and then how that reemergence happens. And I'm wondering if that makes you think of anything like in what you've found out or written about in terms of um, creatures that have an interesting reemergence story this time of year? Yeah, well, frogs are such a good one. I mean, they they are almost completely frozen over the winter. They actually just burrow lightly into the leaf litter and they thaw from the inside out once spring comes, which is like, I think it's a mystery to science still at this point. The other really (laughs) fun fact, you know, I, I, since I teach a lot of kids, I collect gross facts in particular. And so um, wood frogs actually um, concentrate their, I think it's their urea in the fall as an anti um, freezing mechanism. So (laughs) They, they hold I'm their sorry, pee what? all winter long. They hold their pee. Oh, <laughs> They wow. store their urine in order to help um, keep from freezing to death in the winter. It, it Somehow it helps um, their freezing process because they do a lot of their bodies freeze. The, the main goal is that they don't have ice shards form in bad places where those ice shards will shred their cells. Um, and that's how, how they're able to freeze and then, and then thaw. Um, and you know, it's the story of them emerging actually begins in the winter with one of my very favorite things, which is the subnivian zone. I was hoping you'd talk about that. It's <laughs> yeah. such a cool, I, I had never really considered the concept of what that was. So please tell us, tell us about that. Absolutely. I mean, the, the two main concepts are that um, the sun actually warms up the earth and the earth is um, letting off some of that heat all winter long. And then the other part of that is that snow is actually a really good insulator. And so when you get at least, um, I think it takes six inches to a foot of snow at least, then you end up developing mm. what's called the subnivian zone right at that boundary between ground and snow. And so some of the snow melts and recrystallizes 
crystallizes and you actually get little, um, I want to say like gilded hallways and, and spaces, columns of crystal under there. And that's where the mice live. They can run around and so many processes keep going in the winter in the subnivian zone because it stays right around freezing, right around 32 degrees. So um, fungi and bacteria can continue decomposing. You know, mice can continue their life cycles and weasels go in to hunt them. And this blanket of snow is also protecting all of those little hibernating critters. So the wood frogs and the bumblebees and so many other things that overwinter in the leaf litter or in the top of the soil really depend on the subnivian zone to prevent them from freezing. And so that's wow, okay. one of the challenges with climate change is that when you have warmer winters and less snow cover, but then suddenly you get a cold snap, things aren't as protected as they would be if you just had piles and piles of snow all winter long. When that emergence does finally happen um, and and the creatures are coming out and we're taking our first spring hikes, I think one of the other things um, that I read about that I love is like the, the smells that you get right in spring when you're walking um, and some of those molecules are, are kicking up for the first time or after a a spring rain, um, which gets at this I idea of petrichor. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those spring smells and in particular petrichor and what that is and what that name means. Right. Yes. Um, petrichor is definitely one of my favorite words, and it does mean um, the blood of the gods splashed up from the rocks. And so um, what I've read of the science is that plants during a drought actually release oils that um, prevent seeds, seeds from germinating so that we don't have brand new seeds trying to make it in a time when there's not enough water to go around. And it smells amazing. So when you finally get a rainstorm, those little water droplets splash those little bits of um, chemicals up off the rocks and into your nostrils. And it is just the most amazing smell. Um, and that those smells can actually help people or camels find water <laughs> sometime. And, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we had a huge rain, one of our first big rains just last night. And the other thing that, <laughs> especially if you ask my two and five-year-old what they love about a good spring rain is the puddles, right? Afterwards and jumping around in those. And it um, reminded me of a column that you wrote about uh, the happiness to be found in a puddle or the mental health benefits of a puddle. Um, which ties into a much larger concept of biophilia. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and just sort of introduce that concept and how it how it might frame how you look at at your work and your writing. Yeah, I think I think the concept of biophilia was introduced by E.O. Wilson, if I'm not mistaken, and he wrote a whole book about it. But the idea is that humans are sort of built for loving the natural world and for loving nature. And we need to be in contact with nature in order to be whole and, and healthy and happy. And so, I mean, it's I found it to be true in my life. So I do it, you know, like and we and. A lot of what I do in my writing, too, is trying to build empathy between humans in the natural world. There's, a, um, mm. you know, some kind of stickler scientists will say, oh, don't use anthropomorphism because animals don't have feelings or whatever. And I disagree with that. There's, you know, lots of things have feel fear or feel care for 
their um, parents or their children or things. And there's just so many ways that we, so many things we have in common with nature and so many ways we can connect with them. And, you know, even if we don't get the understanding of another creature exactly right, you know, just like you don't always understand the mood of a friend um, completely correctly, I think it does us more good than harm to try and put ourselves in an animal's place or even in a plant's place and imagine how they might be feeling in that moment, how they might feel if we step on them or if we um, help them out in a, in a more um, beneficial way. And I, one of the ways that I try and build empathy in my writing is I've actually sort of changed some of my pronouns that I'm using for wild creatures. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, yes. one of my Ugh, absolute one of my favorite books. books of all time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah, absolutely. Her idea of the grammar of animacy is something I've tried to incorporate into my writing. So I'll never use the word that to refer to a plant or animal, it's always who. That's kind of the easiest transition I've made. And then if I can figure out the the sex of an animal, I will use he or she. And if I can't, then I'll often use the singular they. You know, I was really excited mm. when it became um, okay in um, you know literary circles or the news circles to refer to humans with the singular they if they don't if they don't go by um, he or she mm -hmm. and I love using that for plants and animals and pretty much anything in nature too to give them more life um, as an animate being. Well, especially when you start seeing seeing how everything is interconnected and how things are interacting with each other, it only makes sense to look at it that way. But you're you're right. I think. I mean, you have to see those things and, and understand them before you can make that transition, which ultimately leads to you wanting to to protect those things, right? And and to share them as you do through Absolutely. your writing. Um, Absolutely. And I'm curious about, you know, with this concept of, of biophilia, like how it, you know, not, not only that we have this love, but that nature affects us in a way that does change your mindset or your mood or your perspective. And there are so many interesting studies about how that's working and there was one i remember reading in your column about birdsong for instance and i know you i love how you incorporate that into into your work and your your podcast um but there was one study where it was i think it was 10 percent more neighborhood birdsong equated to 10 percent increase in, in income and, and happiness i don't know if you can reference that but i'm i'm curious about what other ways you've personally or an anecdotally witnessed that idea of, of biophilia at work on the human human mind or the human psyche. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have access to that article off the top of my head, but it was, yeah, some study, I think it was done in Great Britain somewhere, and they found that it, more birds in your neighborhood translated into an increase, not just in income, but also in life satisfaction. And, you know, in my own life, I can attest to the fact that when we have a late spring and the birds aren't coming and it's kind of drab and brown out, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit grumpy sometimes. And <laughs> so this morning I biked into work. It was one of my first bike commutes. I have a 10 mile ride through all these different habitats and all of my friends were back. And you know the black and black and white warblers and black-throated green warblers and oven birds, you know. And I was just in heaven as I was riding into work. It was just you know this cascade of song the whole way in. So 
you know, that's a, a personal anecdote how um, bird songs can bring joy for sure. And it just makes the woods feel alive. And then it's also just really fun. You know, it's kind of like um, some sort of um, video game or test, you know, how am I going to identify all of these bird songs? And it's really satisfying when you when you hear one that you know and can identify it. And then it's a fun puzzle when you hear one you don't know and you have to go look it up or, or get someone to help you identify it. So, you know, it's it's entertainment as well as just, you know, personal satisfaction and joy. It is. I'm, I'm finally getting better about it learning, probably because we have these books for our boys that help you like push the button, you hear the bird and then you see the picture. So I'm finally like connecting the dots too on all of that. But it is so fun to like, you know, having having in the last few years gotten more and more into foraging and, and identifying plant life. I'm like, oh, I would love to be able to identify birds. Are there any programs or educational resources for people that do want to get into that and learn more? Yeah, there's a few. Um, the easiest to access might just be the All About Birds website from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You know, there's mm. all sorts of resources in searchable. It's super easy. There's lots of sounds and pictures and range maps and everything. But one of the resources I use every spring to help um, remind myself what the birds all sound like is a CD, um, the John Faith Bird Song Ear Training Guide. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, John Faith spelled F-E-I-T-H. Um, but the best thing about that CD, they give you the bird song and then they give you the name and then they give you the song again. But by giving you the song before the name, it allows you to quiz yourself as you're listening through uh-huh. the CD. And then also there are these really funny little sayings that go along with the bird songs. So, for example... I had never heard a warbling vireo outside of the CD, but the mnemonic is as if saying to a caterpillar, when I see you, I will squeeze you and I'll squeeze you till you squirt faster than that. (laughs) And I was walking down a gravel road in Iowa at this um, event I was at and I heard it. And I knew instantly that it was a warbling vireo just because of that mnemonic stuck in my head and it helped me recognize the sound in the field. So it's it's been a really oh fun way to learn the songs. That's a pretty specific one. I don't think you'd forget it. That's amazing. That's right. Well, um, one of the other ways that you know, even reading your work or is a big theme on this podcast as we talk to people of like how biophilia is at work is like there are these these subtle things, right? Like hearing birdsong or seeing fractals in nature, these all sort of elevate your mood. But then when you experience a moment of awe, right, in nature, and I know you've talked about this, um, that can start doing something else on an even different level. Um, And one of the moments of awe I'd love to hear about from you, because I think so few people have have done this, um, but is going out hiking at night with a a UV light and how that can lead to awe pretty quickly. Um, And I'm thinking of, you know, some of the things that you can see and you going out with your UV light and your camera and discovering these, like you're capturing these really completely different worlds than what we can see in the daytime. Can you talk a little bit about that as a, as a activity or practice and what types of things you find? Yeah, looking looking around with a UV flashlight is fairly new for me. Um, 
I ended up taking my flashlight on a walk along my driveway, which is kind of a steep bank on one side covered with mosses and lichens and other things. And I, I didn't really know what I would find. I knew from researching pollinators and things that a lot of flowers have UV reflective nectar guides kind of pointing in toward the center where the nectars are because bees can see that. But I didn't know about anything else. And so I started walking along my driveway and just getting my nose right up to the moss and moss fluoresces bright red in UV wow. light, which is just amazing. And then grass actually fluoresces blue, um, which is wild. Iris leaves fluoresce yellow and you know, just all this discovery. And then um, some of the little critters too, like centipedes, they um, fluoresce white. And so it's a lot easier to find them. The contrast is mm. higher um, when you're scouting through the moss. Um, I mean, some of my other favorite things are like slugs. Slugs actually fluoresce blue because of copper in their blood. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. What would you recommend for people that wanted to try this? Like what kind of a, a light would you pick up? Is, is there yeah. a specific UV light you'd be looking for? Or? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of selection on Amazon in like the $20 range. And I found that the 365 nanometer wavelength works really well for just looking for spiders and taking pictures close up. You know, the flashlights are super powerful, but they also don't make everything look pink. Um, I also had a UV Beast brand flashlight that's like super powerful spotlight. And that's what I got for looking at the flying squirrels. So, you know, it can it can actually uh. reach the flying squirrel up in the air. Um, but then it kind of turns everything a little bit pink. And so my photos didn't look super spectacular because it's like, well, is that really fluorescing or is it just kind of pink? And that was, I don't remember what wavelength that was, but it was a UV Beast brand. So it kind of depends on on your what you need it for or what you want to do with it. Sure. Well, I mean, it sounds like there's so much so many interesting things to see by looking closely, like whether you said that's at slugs or the -hmm. plant life, or I think you were writing about some mushrooms too that that give an interesting Look, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Mushrooms fluoresce a lot too. And that was another reason I ended up buying a, a UV flashlight as I hang out with a lot of mushroom people. <laughs> yeah, foraging <laughs> at nighttime. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, and rocks too, honestly. Um, oh. So I actually, one of my mushroom friends was walking with a UV flashlight on my driveway, but he found a fluorescent rock and was super stoked. <laughs> so oh my gosh. minerals wow. fluoresce and, you know, this is, it's just um, gravel that came from the glaciers. Mm. And so some little piece of something had some specks in it. And um, in Michigan, there's a beach, they, um, they call them youper lights. And there's more than an average number of rocks that have these fluorescent mineral flecks in them. And so people, that's a form of tourism now and somebody will take you out on a guided beach, beach walk to find euperlites. Oh, very cool. Well, I can't think of, you know, like a better way to experience awe than seeing a world that you see every day in a completely, literally a new light or a new way. Um, but I'm wondering like other experiences you've had um, of awe, whether that's walking over, I know, um, there's a moss that you like to walk on and have seen, you know, just, just the abundance of life in a simple moss is one thing. Um, but if there are any other examples like that, where you just go like, wow, I just saw this and it kind of changed how I see everything. 
You know, I think like most people, I find awe at big vistas. And those are kind of few and far between up here in the Northwoods. We're pretty closed in. You pretty much, you know, have to go to a lakeshore or go on a big hike. But there's a couple overlooks nearby, um, Juniper Rock Overlook and St. Peter's Dome. And if you get to the top, especially in the spring or the fall, the colors of the trees are amazing. And most people probably don't even notice that there are um, like fall colors in the spring too. So all the little buds and Mm. all the little newly emerging leaves have their own shades of pink and, you know, bright green and orange. And so I really love going up to the top of those vistas and just looking at the diversity of trees that you can actually see just by the colors Mm. of their buds and their emerging leaves. I think more often um, because because I take such pleasure in the connections and the small things, I find yeah. more awe even like inside a single leaf of a pitcher plant. Um, mm. So you know, heading into a bog, bogs and fens are just full of really unique diversity, and thinking about all of the adaptations and all the ways that all the little critters in there work together, and you know that's that's the whole. Um, community of the bog and then you get inside a pitcher plant leaf and there's the water that's in there and the digestive juices and enzymes that come from the plant and then you have the whole community of life that comes to be in there too so you have a flesh fly larva that's um, catching the ants that fall into the pitcher plant and shredding them to pieces and then in the middle of the water column you have um, a specific species of mosquito larva that catches the crumbs and way at the bottom you have the midge larva that are decomposers and, and cleaning up all of the leftovers and the midge larva and the pitcher plant itself are so good at absorbing all of those nutrients that you open one up and it can be black sludgy leftovers of everything it's eaten and it doesn't stink they have absorbed all of the nitrogen and all of the nutrients and it's you know it's just this amazing little community and one of the things that i find most amazing about that is that normally you would think oh if you take out one of those partners that's eating pieces of stuff then the other creatures would have more food and so they get bigger faster or somehow be more successful but it is not the case you need the whole community um, for all of them to be successful so they're actually more successful when they have more partners in the pitcher plant leaf wow and i that's what i love i mean man when you do look closer it it, it just opens up a whole new world and is often mind-blowing Thank you so much for letting us experience these things through a naturalist lens. And um, we look forward to following along as you, as you continue to publish. Thanks so much for having me. Have a wonderful spring. To read through an archive of Emily's weekly column, visit cablemuseumnaturalconnections.blogspot.com or you can purchase one or both of her Natural Connections books from any major bookseller. You can also listen to her column in podcast form by searching Natural Connections in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. 
Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story, on your phone is great, and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us. 